0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Greg Jarrett. Welcome to the CAPS Forum on Ethics and Public Policy. Tonight we're very pleased to have uh, Eugene Volick. Um, Eugene is the Gary T. Schwartz Professor of Law at UCLA Law School. Volokh specializes in all areas of First Amendment law. He also regularly works in copyright law, criminal law, and some areas of Second Amendment law. Before coming to UCLA, um, Eugene clerked uh, for Judge Alex Kaczynski at the U.S. Court of Appeals and for um, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor at the Supreme Court. Um, He has authored... um, uh, three textbooks on First Amendment law and related issues. He has uh, countless uh, articles published. Uh, Six of his law review articles have been cited by Supreme Court justices. Twenty-nine of his works have been cited by federal circuit courts. Um, So he's been around. He kind of knows a lot of stuff. Um, But if that's not enough... Uh, He's also the founder and author of The Volokh Conspiracy, uh, a web blog that gets up to 40,000 hits a day. So if you get kind of riled up from tonight's talk and you feel all bloggy, uh, you might want to check out The Volokh Conspiracy. Um, Tonight he's here. Um, We're we're very happy to have him. And uh, he wants to speak to us on the issue of freedom of speech and academic freedom on campus, why it matters, and how it's being threatened. Please welcome, Eugene Volokh.
2: Thank you. Um, Thank you very much uh, for the kind introduction. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to be talking exactly about that. I'm going to start with how it's being threatened. I'm going to talk a little about why it matters. And then I'm going to finish by talking a little bit about freedom of speech and academic freedom and what they might mean uh, and what the difference is. Freedom of speech is a legal concept. Academic freedom is more a concept of professional ethics. Uh, It turns out they may play out sometimes in somewhat different ways, but unsurprisingly they're often talked about together. So I'm going to start by just pointing to a few particular examples. Uh, Let me start with an example about moot court. I don't know how many of you have run across moot court before. Moot court is a staple of law schools. Uh, In pretty much every law school, there's at least one moot court program. Generally speaking, they are run by students, but under the advice, uh, I'm sorry, with the advice and in some measure under the control of faculty members, just because faculty members know a little bit more about law than the students do. And uh, uh, the purpose of the Moot Court is to teach students how to be better lawyers. It's not an academic class in the sense of teaching you substantive subject matter. It helps teach you how to write briefs, and it helps, um, it helps uh, uh, teach you how to argue. Because what happens is you write your briefs, uh, then you argue, and there's a competition, and eventually there's a final, final round. And then you're, you're uh, uh, evaluated by the judges, who are usually start out by local lawyers. Uh, and then eventually, the final round is usually uh, f- uh, uh, app- federal appellate judges. You're evaluated uh, based on your writing and based on your, um, uh, uh, on your argument. You're not evaluated, generally speaking, based on your research. That turns out to be important for this story. So usually, usually, what happens is it's a so-called closed problem. You're given a problem, and then you're given a set of cases, and you read the cases. And everybody has the same set of cases, so you don't have to spend time researching. You don't have the risk that maybe, uh, maybe the uh, uh, you you'd end up not finding some case, and as a result, you you write a worse brief just because of this mistake in the research. So this is the way that moot court operates, and this is what happened in this particular law school. This is a law school. It's a top 20 nationally, nationally regarded law school. Um, and the issue was, when does speech become an unprotected true threat of violence? Uh, this was a case. This was based on a case that was before the court a couple of years ago called the You may have heard of it. it was, some people talk about it as the Facebook threats case. It happened to involve... It. Threats on Facebook, the fact it was on Facebook was quite irrelevant. The important thing is it was a threats case. A- and it was an interesting question. By the way, of course, moot court problems very often are based on currently pending Supreme Court cases, in part because they're in the news, they're interesting. Uh, and the question was actually kind of a technical legal question. Uh, whether uh, you need, to, uh, with a persecution in order to find some, to convict someone of a threat, needs to show the person specifically intended to put the, the target in fear, or whether it's enough to show that a reasonable listener would have, would have been put in fear. An interesting technical problem having to do with something called mens rea. I don't know if you've run across it. If you go to law school, you're going to study criminal law. Your first, sim, first year, you're going to hear a lot about mens rea. This is, uh, this is standard legal stuff, and that's why I think the students thought it was an interesting question. The leading precedent was a case called Virginia v. Black. It's a 2003 case which involved cross-burning. The question was, when does cross-burning become a threat? And the reason why Alonis was, in fact, before the court in the first place, is Virginia v. Black had a line that suggested that the test, constitutional test, is indeed purpose. That you, that you need to show that somebody had the purpose of threatening. Other courts had earlier, and since said, no, no, that's not the rule and that uh, the Supreme Court maybe didn't really think it through when it announced it that way. So there was a disagreement be- among the courts. Again, so far it sounds like a very straightforward, straightforward legal issue. Uh, but it turns out, it turns out uh, what happened was the students, this came out because students got in touch with a local faculty member and said, there's a problem with our moot court problem. What's the problem? Well, the administration is telling us that we can't include Virginia v. Black as one of the cases in the research packet. I, and the faculty member says, that's pretty odd. Uh, I have this all on very good authority. Uh, so uh, uh, that's, that's pretty odd. Uh, oh, wh- why can't you include it? It's the single most important precedent. Because it involved flag burning. I'm sorry, cross burning. And black students might be upset by this. Now note, this didn't come from any particular students. This was the administration projecting that some students might be upset by the fact pattern of one of the precedents, Virginia v. Black, and that they shouldn't have to read this precedent. But then, of course, the question is, what about the other precedents? Because if there are other cases in the course pack, they have to mention Virginia v. Black. And court opinions, usually when they mention a case, say something about the key facts. Oh, the student said, we were told to take care of that too. We have to redact. We have to edit out the facts of Virginia v. Black. From every case, every case that mentions it, and four administrators told them the same thing. Ultimately, what happened is they went to a fifth administrator at the advice of this faculty member, an administrator who'd actually come from the tenured faculty rather than being uh, an administrator who had gone through the lecturer route or had never been a lecturer, and the fifth administrator said that 's a very strange, uh, strange uh, uh, demand that you 're getting, and within two days it was all. It was all revoked. So from my perspective, it was a happy ending, but a not so happy beginning. And I want to start with this because this isn't actually a matter of free speech. There's no First Amendment right in this context to have a particular problem, in part because this is something of a curricular offering. It's done by the students, so it's not actually part of the formal curriculum, but it is subject to the editing of the faculty member. And if the faculty member had said, you can't include that precedent, it's completely not on point. Or if the faculty editor said, you know, you really shouldn't include this precedent. It's just too confusing. Trust me, I've taught a lot of students. This precedent is too confusing. Use this other precedent. That would have been perfectly sound, it seems to me. But what was going on here is because of this concern that has especially arisen, I think, over the last several years about what some people call safe spaces, about having students not feel offended or upset or triggered by material, what happened was the underlying the underlying substantive pedagogy of the problem was being destroyed. Students, instead of being taught, look, you have to read the cases. You're a lawyer, you have to read the cases. Some of the cases may involve really bad people doing bad things. That's why they're in court, criminal law especially. They could involve murder, they can involve rape, they can involve robbery, they could involve cross burning. That's, it seems to me, the pedagogical message that students have to be taught. You know, when you're a lawyer, you can't just tell your client, no, I'm sorry, I can't read that precedent. It's too upsetting to me. And again, I I, I don't think any students actually asked the administration to do this. Administration was being proactive there, just not the good kind of proactive. So that's what persuaded me that there really is a problem. It's a problem not just as to speech restrictions as such. It's a problem about academic freedom and ultimately about academic integrity. And one of the lessons of this example is that academic freedom isn't just an abstraction. Academic freedom is about effective training it's of, of students, effective teaching of students, effective learning by students. Uh, and it's not just about that, but in considerable measure it is about that. And losses to academic freedom are ultimately, in many ways, losses to effective teaching of students. Let me give you another example. So this was, uh, without, uh, this was a flyer uh, for, uh, for an event at the University of Minnesota. Note the date, January tw- 2015. It was right after the massacres at, the, uh, at Charlie Hebdo. Uh, and uh, the title was Can One Laugh at Everything, Satire and Free Speech After Charlie. And you'll notice that the panelists were all academics. This wasn't just like student group invites some, um, some incendiary speaker uh, and then the administration says, uh, we don't much like him. No, these are, this is about as establishment as you can get. Some of them were members of the University of Minnesota faculty. Three of them were. One was from a law professor at a neighboring school. Another was an editorial cartoonist at the local uh, uh, newspaper, which makes, makes sense. It seemed like a very sensible panel to have at the time. So here's what happened. Uh, Kimberly Hewitt, who was director of the Equal Opportunity Affirmative Action Office, uh, got complaints about the presence of this flyer, that it created a hostile environment for Muslim students because it depicted what supposedly is a depiction of Muhammad. Now, for obvious reasons, we have no idea if this is at all like Muhammad. Uh, but, uh, but because it depicted, the, uh, depicted Muhammad, that this was, a f- this was uh, offensive to students. So she says, well, my office has no choice but to investigate. There are limits in free speech, and that would be where you have harassment of an individual based on their identity. Now, sometimes we will say about harassment, what we think is, okay, somebody's walking behind you shouting epithets at you, or shouting non-epithets at you. you. could be shouting, I love you, at you. At some point, it becomes harassment. But this wasn't that. In fact, in a sense, it's an individual. It wasn't about any particular individual at the University of Minnesota. To the extent individuals felt this, uh, felt upset, it was just because it was, a, it was an image of a religious leader. It was a commentary on religion, or related to religion as a whole. Still, she says, this might be harassment. We got complaints that they felt it was insulting and disparaging to their faith. Now, when word of the complaints got out, a college administrator sent out an email asking the flyers to be taken down. And the dean of the department, I think very much to his credit, said absolutely not. The flyers stay up. My faculty are putting on this event, and you can't censor their descriptions of this event. The investigation ultimately concluded the flyer does not rise to the level of harassment that would violate university policy. But it found that because many people found the poster personally offensive and hurtful, it contributed an atmosphere of disrespect towards Muslims. And in a letter to Coleman, Hewitt recommended that he communicate that the college does not support the flyer's image of the Char- Charlie Hebdo depiction of Muhammad. Now, I, if I were the dean, my response would be that I do support that. but. You know, I would insist that everybody take that view. At the very least, though, the dean might say, Well, it's not my job to decide whether I support this or not. My job is to create an en- environment where faculty members and students can discuss all of these issues, whether I support a particular depiction or not. It's not for me as management to tell them what depiction uh, I would support or not, especially if you look at what this depiction is. This depiction is one of the most important. Uh, images of the last decade. It is something that is of historical significance. It is something that decades from now, people will still be talking about and reading and seeing in books and talking about in articles. To say that because some people find this image to be blasphemous, it cannot be displayed at a university seems to me, as a very, very major step backwards for academic freedom. And again, ultimately for freedom of students to learn and for students to hear all sorts of, uh, all sorts of views, whether they are views that are favorable towards Islam or hostile towards Islam. Um, all right. Uh, so this is, I think, a special case of what, interestingly, would seem to be rediscovering is very old sort of restriction that na- the Supreme Court in 1952 I had thought had buried in a case called Joseph Burston, uh, but uh, now seems to be coming back, and that's prohibition on blasphemy. So at San, San Francisco State University, college Republicans were investigated for months for stepping on a Hamas flag. Uh, Hamas is a terrorist organization, but among other things, on its flag, it has apparently a passage from the Koran, including, I think, the name of, the, the, the name of Allah. So... Some Muslim students complained, saying this we find offensive to us as Muslims, because they're trampling on... It wasn't actually even a real flag. It was their drawing of the Hamas flag. Well, I can see why some people would be offended, but this is the flag of ultimately a government, of a terrorist organization. It could have been a non-terrorist organization... It seems to me that criticizing governments and expressing your hostility to governments is an important part of what university students should be free to do, whether it's the government of Israel or the government of Hamas, and whether their flag contains religious symbolism or not. At Purdue, a professor was investigated for criticizing Muslims on a Facebook page. These incidents actually do, predominantly these days, involve anti-Islam speech. At Tufts University, held that a student newspaper harassed Muslim students by publishing a critical parody of Islamic Awareness Week. Something similar to the University of Chicago. And then just around round this out, William Patterson University, a Muslim student, was charged with sexual harassment when a professor who sent out a message affirmatively promoting a film labeled a lesbian relationship story, he sent back saying he doesn't want to hear that because he thinks homosexuals are perverted. Now, it's not my view that homosexuals are perverted, but it does seem to be his understanding of his religion and... That seems to me to be a view that needs to be aired, whether you agree with it or not. If you disagree with it, you need to be able to explain why it's wrong and not just charge people with sexual harassment uh, for promoting it. This is a different example. Blinn College, which is a college, community college in Texas. This is a sign. I don't think they got a very large grant from any outside groups to produce this sign. Defend gun rights on campus by young Americans for liberty. That was their sign. The administrators told students that she needs special permission to display the sign and to collect sign-ups for the club. Now part of the problem is this was one of those free speech zone type cases where the administrator said, look, we just don't want any speech. It's not like we just don't like your ideas. We just don't want any speech because it's a bother. It, uh, it's something that interferes with our bureaucratic way of running, running the institution. So you need special permission just to display a sign and collect sign-ups. Uh, But one of the things that they also made clear is the permission might be unavailable because of the message, because the signs support gun rights on campus. Now, there's a big controversy about whether students who have legal licenses to carry concealed guns should be free to carry them on campus. In about 40 states, any law-abiding adult can get such a license or sometimes even carry a concealed gun without a license. Uh, In some of those states, they can carry it on campus. Others not. An interesting question. I don't know what the right answer is. But again, it seems to me that that is a question that should be debated as a matter of academic freedom and not suppressed. Uh, There are many other examples. Um, Let me mention a couple from the University of California. And then I'll shift a little bit to the broader principles. Um, But actually, let let me just focus on one, because uh, uh, I want to make sure we have plenty of time for Q&A. So here is is a proposed policy on tolerance that was urged by some in the university administration for the regents. Ultimately, was rejected by the regents, I think, quite wisely. They then adopted another policy, which I'm not wild about. Not as bad as this one, though, so I suppose that's a step forward. Uh, so there is this list of uh, behaviors that do not reflect the university's value of inclusion and tolerance. That's what the university calls it. And But note, it doesn't just say, look, we don't think it doesn't reflect our values. It actually affirms that there's a right to work free from expressions of intolerance. Note how it's articulated as rights. Presumably, if it is a right, there may be some consequences for violating that right. And it's not just a right to be free from discrimination in the sense of free from being kicked out of school or out of a class or beaten up because of your race or whatever else. It's a right to work free from expressions. Now, well, one might ask, well, what are expressions of intolerance? Is it just like epithets being shouted at you? What is it? Helpfully, the policy offers some examples. Here's one. Depicting or articulating a view of ethnic or racial groups as less ambitious, less hardworking or talented, or more threatening than other groups. Now, I think many such views are incorrect. It's possible some views might be correct. It's an interesting question. Are there actual differences between cultures uh, that cause some to be more hardworking or less hardworking, some more ambitious or less ambitious? When we see, for example, the differences in performance of various various, uh, ethnic and racial groups, for example, certain East Asian uh, 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 groups, uh, East Asian American, I suppose, groups, uh, 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 having higher uh, um, median incomes than the average white uh, American uh, and, uh, 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 say, uh, African Americans and Hispanics having lower uh, lower incomes? Is that all as a result of uh, discrimination, let's say, or something else? Or could it be in part because there is more ambition or more hard work as a cultural matter in some groups? An interesting question. Again, you might f- feel very confident you know the answer to, but that's an interesting issue that needs to be debated rather than just categorically stated to be a violation of people's rights to work free from certain views. Then they move on to disability, depicting or articulating a view of people with disabilities both visible and invisible as incapable. I, I'm not fond of kind of these attempts to rework uh, terms like to replace handicapped with other terms or something like that. But there was one term that I really very much liked that somebody once suggested I was, uh, uh, they were talking about this was a disabled rights advocate. And he was saying, Uh, that he thinks that non-disabled people should be renamed the temporarily able-bodied. And I thought that was a very wise (laughs) statement. Uh, uh, The ambition of all of us, I think, is to reach an age where, unfortunately, life being as it is, we will be disabled in one way or another. The only way really to avoid that is to die young. My grandfather, whom I love dearly, was basically blind for the last 20 years of his life. I think it's very easy to have a lot of sympathy for people who have disabilities. At the same time, it is indubitably correct that people who are disabled are incapable of certain things. Maybe not of everything. Maybe they can be made more capable to do certain things within limits through certain accommodations. And then you can debate about what kinds of accommodations are are sound. But this is just the thing that they say is a right to work free from expressions of intolerance is a right to work free from statements that are actually true, that are indubitably true. Again, you can debate which ones of them are true. Maybe many statements about people with disabilities as being incapable are exaggerations or are, or are unsound. Quite possible. But some of them are indubitably right. And yet we are told that that would be violation of the people's rights. Now, to, to be fair, the university, uh, excuse me, the people proposing it, the administrators proposing it did say, the statement shall not be interpreted to prohibit conduct that is related to course content, teaching methods, scholarship, or public commentary of an individual faculty member, or the educational, political, artistic, or literary expression of students in classrooms and public forums that is protected by academic freedom or free speech principles. So there was a nod in the direction, uh, I think more, perhaps even more than just a nod in the direction of academic freedom. At the same time, let's look at what is covered and what is excluded. What about? students who are talking in newspapers. Well, that's not, a newspaper is not a classroom and it's not a public forum. So presumably, that is something that might be covered by the statement. Uh, Or how about uh, about faculty members' conversations over lunch? They're not course content, teaching methods, scholarship, or public commentary. That too is not within the exclusion. Presumably, it's within this declaration. And beyond that, again, once the university administration And again, fortunately, UC didn't do this, but once the university administration declares something to be a violation of people's rights, presumably some kind of uh, sanction, some kind of punishment will at some point be imposed for that. Otherwise, what's the point of calling it a violation of rights? So... uh, uh, Whatever the university might be saying in the last two paragraphs there, I think what it's saying in the first three paragraphs is, indeed, there's these views are views that you had best be careful about expressing at the university, unless, of course, you're fortunate to be a tenured faculty member, in which case, all bets are off. Uh, let me close with one other example, and then I'll turn to, uh, to kind of a more analytical perspective. So there was also a proposal that was being circulated by some, again, not accepted by the university, uh, and I think quite rightly, urging that the university adopt the State Department definition of anti-Semitism. Again, they weren't exactly proposing an actual prohibition on expression of this this kind of anti-Semitism under this definition, Uh, but it seemed pretty clear that when the university, if the regents of the university were to adopt this as a definition of anti-Semitism, that would be a pretty strong signal to people who worry about their jobs uh, that they had best stay away from these kinds of statements. So what are the definitions? Well, examples of the way anti-Semitism manifests itself with regard to the state of Israel. Demonizing Israel by drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis. Double standards for Israel. Delegitimizing Israel, denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination denying Israel the right to exist. And then, of course, a saving clause. However, criticism of Israel similar to that leveled against any other country cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. So they're trying to 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 restrain that some. But let's look at what what this means. I actually support Israel. I think think Israel, on balance, is probably one of the better countries to live in in uh, in, uh, the Middle East, and it's a better country to live in for Arabs than most of the other Arab countries. They have more democratic rights in Israel than they do in most of the other Arab countries. So I'm actually a supporter of Israel, But at the same time, Israel, no less than Hamas, no less than Islam, no less than capitalism or communism or anything else, has to be subject to criticism. What about denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination and denying Israel the right to exist? Well, it's an interesting question of which people should have a right to self-determination. Should the northern Cypriots... There, there's a breakaway uh, Turkish speaking uh, part of, Cip- of Cyprus that is sort of a, a de facto a, a separate country but not generally accepted. What about the Basques? What about the Quebecois? What about the Scots? What about the Taiwanese? What about the Tibetans? Interesting questions. Maybe the answer is all of them should, should have this right. Maybe, n- maybe the answer is none of them should have this right. But these are questions that need to be debated and not condemned by the university as supposed anti-Semitism. Uh, now, and the saving clause is really not, not much of a protection at all, right? Most people don't actually go out there and say, okay, fine, I'm going to have a program of personally making sure that I consistently criticize all countries. So if I'm going to criticize Israel for something, I need to make sure that I'm going to spend some of my time criticizing Saudi Arabia for something. People talk about what they're interested in. And people talk about what is, makes them passionate. People generally don't have time to, to talk about more than one country, uh, or learn enough about a, pro- a more than one problem to figure out uh, uh, what, they, what they think about it. So the consequence of this kind of proposal would be a suppression, it seems to me, of the academic freedom to discuss very important questions about, about Israel, even if the viewpoint that's being suppressed is one that I generally don't agree with. Let's skip through things and let's, let's, let's move on to the analysis. So let me tell you about some well-established truths. And I want to do this from the perspective of the first case from the Supreme Court where justice talked about uh, the the First Amendment as a means for pursuing truth and protecting the marketplace of ideas. And this is Justice Holmes in one of the early post-World War I dissents, where he talked about, among other things, time having upset many fighting faiths. That's the line he used. Interesting line. What does it mean? Well, let's talk about some well-established truths. Some races are inferior, perfectly orthodox standard view among scholars of Holmes's era. Without question, a major part of the progressive, uh, of actually progressive platform in many ways. Women's and men's roles must be different. This famous Brandeis brief that Louis Brandeis, who is, or Louis Brandeis, excuse me, uh, who is remembered as a very important kind of libertarian uh, justice uh, of the early 1900s, that brief uh, came in a case where he was arguing that in fact because women uh, are uh, more frail in various ways than men they should uh, a, a law that provides a special maximum hours for women which also makes women much less competitive as a result in the workforce because they're subject to the supposedly protective measures should be constitutional it was perfectly well accepted as, as totally obviously true that women's and men's roles must be different in a vast range of life homosexuality is a mental illness well established truth accepted until 1974. Abortion must be made criminal. Same, same view. Premarital sex is immoral and destructive to society. You would have talked to somebody at that era and they would have said absolutely. And they would have had perfectly, perfectly solid arguments for that. Society must promote religion. Sort of the opposite of the modern establishment clause view, p- perfectly as well established. And of course, speaking of Holmes, that mental defectives should be sterilized. This is the, an opinion that, he, that uh, there was a common law at the time, and he, it was an opinion that he wrote that upheld that law in Buck v. Bell in the late 1920s. Now we say, well, but of course, we know these aren't actually true. We have moved on, and now we know the truth. Back then they thought they knew the truth, but they were wrong. Now we do know the truth. And we're right. Well, that's probably what we do think, and almost by definition, right? If we think something is true, we think we're right. But I think one of the things that Holmes talked about is that even when you're talking about these kinds of topics, he wasn't focusing on all of them, but just to list the ones about which we have very deep views, and most of us can't imagine we might be mistaken on them. But you can't know that you're right any more than the people back then, whom we now believe to be wrong, could have known that they were right. In any, in any final way. This is what I consider the first and the most important academic freedom principle. You don't know. We might have very deep views about these subjects, but we don't actually know. And we can never finally know. We have to be free to ask and consider possible answers. Precisely because it's always possible that the orthodoxies of today on all of these subjects would have, will prove to be just as incorrect or kind of, a, or partly as incorrect uh, as the orthodoxies of the past. But this turns to another point. How can we have some confidence that we are right? Because we do have to figure out what we think is right. Even if we accept that at some point in the future it may be proven wrong, we have to be able to figure out that we're we're right. Uh, 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 We have to figure out we're right about something for now. We have to make decisions. We have to decide what kind of civil rights policy to have, what kind of environmental policy, foreign policy. So we, we have to do that for now at least. How can we know? And here's academic freedom principle two. Only that which can be challenged can be accepted. Let me give you two examples. One is about the so-called Armenian Holocaust. So in 1915, I think about a million or more Armenians died during World War I in Ottoman Turkey. Uh, Many scholars believe that this was part of a deliberate attempt by the Turks to exterminate the Armenians. The Armenians were seen as kind of Christians allied with the Russians who were historically at that point the enemies of the Turks. The Turks were... Uh, the Ottoman Empire was, of course, a Muslim, uh, Muslim empire and that, uh, that they won- therefore wanted to slaughter a million Armenians. The other view is war is a nasty, nasty thing. People die all the time there. Uh, and uh, uh, what happened was this was just an unfortunate... F- Result of the war, there may have been individual, individual atrocities against Armenians, but this was, this was not part of a coherent attempt to, uh, to exterminate Armenians. Interesting question. My sense is the dominant academic view is, in, is the former, that there was in fact a, a deliberate Holocaust. But how can I possibly know this? I'm not a scholar of World War, uh, of the kind of the Southeastern Front during World War I. Are any of you? Maybe some of you are. Most of you aren't. How can you know? How can you figure out what to think about this? Well, I take it you talk to scholars. You read scholars. You try to figure it out. If there is conventional wisdom in, in the profession that says that, that uh, uh, there was, in fact, a, a deliberate holocaust of the Armenians, well, then you might say, all right, that's worth worth believing, at least unless I learn otherwise. But you can't possibly know this unless people... Uh, unless uh, 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 people are free to argue the opposite. Conversely, you can't be sure that a view is wrong unless people are free to defend it. And we see it proven wrong in open debate. If somebody gets up and says, look, this was just all an unfortunate accident. And other scholars say, no, this is clearly wrong. Look at this document, that document. And the people who know in the audience nod and say, yeah, yeah, there really was an Armenian Holocaust. Then I could say, okay, fine. I'm willing to believe what the scholars think. But if I know that the guy who was going to come to defend this couldn't come because he's in jail for denying the Armenian Holocaust, or couldn't come because he's afraid of a civil lawsuit, or he's afraid of being fired. In fact, there was in France. Uh, Bernard Lewis, the very prominent historian of the Ottoman Empire, uh, was, uh, was prosecuted for and fined uh, for uh, what was seen as denial of the Armenian Holocaust. The moment I know that, at that point, I know that I can no longer trust that conventional wisdom because that conventional wisdom is not the result of coherent debate. It is, the, uh, it is rather the, um, uh, the result of, of a truncated debate, deliberately truncated debate. Let me give you one other example. One of the most controversial issues um, uh, around these days is whether there are uh, significant statistical differences in possibly in cognition, possibly in temperament, between racial groups and a separate, although related question, between the two sexes. Now, my sense from what I understand, again, conventional wisdom to be, is that most scholars don't think there really is any such difference between racial and ethnic groups. Some disagree, but that seems to be conventional wisdom. As to sex, the, the matter is uh, more up in the air, um, among other things, because it is quite clear that men and women have very substantial, substantial chromosomal differences. Obviously, we, we, uh, of the 46 chromosomes, men and women share only 45. Uh, so uh, um, uh, th- I think there's a lot being learned now about genetics that might upset any of these views. I don't know. But this, this is an important practical question. Note, it's an empirical question. You can't reason your way to an answer to this. This is something that only scholars can figure out by study. Well, again, w- if we f- want to figure out what sh- our tentative view on this should be, we can figure it out if we listen to the scholars, but only so long as the scholars are free to express whatever views they can. If it turns out you're going to lose your job for taking one side of the, of the argument, it's not just that one side is silent. It's the other side is no longer credible. Because the other side is not something that, we, that has come to win the debate because its arguments are better. It's come to win the debate because the people on the other side get fired. How can we know how to respond to people we think are wrong? So this is what I call the reverse Pauline Kale principle. It's a famous quote from Pauline Kale. It's sometimes somewhat mangled, but here's what I think is the right version. I looked it up. This is in 1972. I live in a rather special world, she says, December after the election. I only know one person who voted for Nixon. Where they are, I don't know. They're outside my ken. But sometimes when I'm in a theater, I can feel them. She was a uh, movie critic. Nixon, by the way, he was a president once, right? Um, So this is often seen as emblematic of a kind of cocooning that people often go through, either deliberately or just that's the way life operates. They end up being surrounded just by people who are like-minded. The problem is they end up being unable to understand why the other side wins? Why did Nixon win? Well, uh, if you have never talked to people who are supporters of Nixon, if they're shouted down, if they're expelled, or if they're otherwise suppressed, well, then in that case, you'd have a hard time understanding that, have a hard time figuring out how to, kept, how to keep him from winning. Uh, likewise, look, I'm no great fan of Donald Trump by any means, but there are lots of people who seem to be that. We can silence them, we can try to make sure they can't express their views of the university, but then how can we know how we can persuade them? How can we know which of their arguments seem to be something that strikes a chord with some listeners? It's only by hearing them out that I think we can understand how to rebut them. And that too is, I think, a very important academic freedom principle. Uh, uh, let me, l- these are actually the, the most important ones. Uh, uh, let me, let me uh, close with, uh, with uh, w- uh, one more. What I call is the spectrum of discourse. This is one thing that you often hear about. Well, all right, we should protect all these ideas, but why protect vulgarities? Why protect empty slogans? Somebody's chalking Trump, make America great again. Where's the logical element of that? Why protect sound bites or ill-informed or illogical arguments? We're a university. We're an academic institution. Why protect anything except academic discussion? So here's what I think is another important principle, and that's communication and debate works on many levels of detail and rationalism. (laughs) And we saw that very much in many kinds of uh, political and social movements. Uh, There are the Black Lives Matter movement. Black Lives Matter, it's a slogan. It's not an argument. It's not a learned paper it's not an argument in the sense of it's not a sustained argument it's a slogan that resonates with many people that captures something it doesn't capture enough to get you an A on a test right you can't uh, if you're being judged as a scholar or even as a student you can't win with just the slogan but the slogan is important that many movements are a combination of slogans of appeals to anger appeals to emotion as well as appeals to rationality and of course more sustained arguments So let me just turn now to the last component and we'll have more time during Q&A. What does free speech and academic freedom protect us against it? My view, I think it's a pretty accurate summary of where the courts are, at least as the free speech side. Uh, So first, it's a protection against university punishment. It's a protection, I think, against university implicit threats of suppression. It's a protection against private violence and against shouting down. It is not a protection against criticism. If, you, if somebody says something that people think are wrong, and everybody says, this is so wrong, and he says, oh, I feel, I feel silenced because I'm afraid that people will say I'm wrong. Well, all right. Well, they are entitled to say that you're wrong, just as you're entitled to say you're right. In fact, that's part of this marketplace of ideas actually functioning. Note, the careful reader will have noted, that not all of these can be First Amendment issues. For example, uh, shouting down and private violence aren't First Amendment problems because... If they're done by private entities, they're not governed by by private individuals. They're not governed by the First Amendment. I think it's a matter of academic freedom that a university must protect uh, students and speakers and faculty members from private violence from shouting down. uh, But it's not a matter of First Amendment law. On the other hand, university punishment is a matter of First Amendment protection as well as academic freedom principles. There are different implementations, I should note, in different places. Student speech outside class, I think, is most protected. Newspapers, online posts, conversations, student groups, parties, fraternity parties, even at fraternities, Uh, student groups, guest speakers, classic examples. On the other hand, student speech in class necessarily can't be. There are basic principles of content neutrality that apply to government regulations of speech. They can't apply to grading, right? You can't say to your professor, you know, you have to grade my paper independently of the content of what I say, right? Grading, grading class participation has to contain some element of evaluation which will have a content based and sometimes even viewpoint based dimension. Now academic freedom principles I think constrain professors that way. Professor can't give given A to anybody who expresses this viewpoint, but an F to anybody who expresses that. Uh, but there has to be a lot of latitude for faculty evaluation. Likewise, student conversations, when you're trying to orchestrate a helpful conversation, I will sometimes not call on students who I think have have spoken too much or students who I think are rude or something along those lines. Faculty speech likewise. I think there are different contexts. There's faculty speech outside class, on blogs, op-eds, speeches. Uh, That, I think, generally should be fully protected. There's substantial free speech protection, But it turns out it's not completely certain just how broad. There's some cases point one way, some cases point another way. Uh, But I think there's very broad academic freedom protection for that. On the other hand, faculty too have to be evaluated. You don't think of us this way, and those of us who have tenure have to be evaluated a lot less, with a lot less at stake. But we have to be evaluated at hiring, tenure, and promotion. And again, nobody evaluating our work can be content neutral in their judgments. We have to be evaluated as to our teaching. Uh, if, my f- if my dean were to tell me, when you teach free speech law, teach these subjects and not those subjects, these uh, doctrines and not those, I would feel annoyed. I would feel that's a violation of traditional principles uh, that the, univer- that the pro- university professor gets to run things in his classroom. But I don't think it would be a first amendment violation. I mean, if I'm being supplied with a captive audience by, uh, the, by the university that's paying my salary to teach them, it could insist that I teach certain topics. Could it insist that I teach certain viewpoints as correct? It's an interesting question. Maybe it might actually, as a First Amendment matter. There I think the academic freedom matters become much more troublesome. Uh, uh, Academic freedom problems become much more troublesome. One question we might want to ask ourselves is, should the answer be different in the humanities opposed to the sciences? I suppose if a geologist were to start teaching that the Earth is only 5,000 years old, uh, then that's a viewpoint but it's probably one that the dean should have a good, good talking to with the geologist about. So I should say I'm a big su- supporter of free speech and academic freedom, but w- especially when you're talking about people being hired to say something, being hired to teach supposedly accurate information to students, there have to be limits to their ability to say, well, I'm going to teach it my way. Uh, finally, let me just close by one thing where actually I agree with some of the people I may disagree with on the other things, and that's university-endorsed speech. Graduation speakers, university invited lecturers, like me, a monuments, building names. You know, I think if when people say they should rename Calhoun College because Calhoun was a bad guy who, should, who shouldn't be honored uh, by, uh, uh, by the university, that's a perfectly plausible position. I think we need to be careful when we uh, deal with history and not try to shoehorn everybody in the past into the values of today. Nobody in the past shared all of our values, and some of them departed from it in, in more ways, and yet they may have done important things and left important le- legacies. I'm not sure John Calhoun would be one of them, uh, but, uh, but that's something that, that we need to discuss. But when it comes to university controlling what it itself says, whom it honors, I think there is a lot of latitude in saying, you know, we should honor different people now than we may have thought proper 50 years ago. But when it comes to student speech, when it comes to professor speech, when it comes to real academic debate among members of the university community. There it seems to me that is both under threat and needs to be defended from those threats. Uh, So that's a rather quick tour through a complicated topic. And I'm glad, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that we have time for questions.
1: Excellent, excellent. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I hope you um, will, will step up and uh, ask questions. Uh, a couple of things: you uh, please use uh, this microphone. I don't know if there's another one. Uh, please, we need you to speak into the microphone if you have questions. Um, the other thing is, we, we do ask that questions are in the form of questions, um, you know, and not uh, you know uh, long personal statements. Um, no matter how hard or you know difficult the questions may be. Uh, so with that being said,
2: uh I like, Spa-
1: I like Spanish because,
2: as I understand it, there's yeah, yeah, an upside yeah. on question mark at the beginning, yeah, the beginning. of a question <laughs> as well. It's a nice little
1: signal that the rest has
2: to be a question.
1: Please.
0: Hi, Professor. Thank you very much, and congratulations for your lecture. My question was, uh, it's a question, it's an statement, uh, what, how do you frame, uh, what do you think about the protest to the national athems? I'm
2: sorry, protest?
0: Uh... To a national anthem, national um, anthem. Anthem, anthem, yeah. National anthem, protest? Yeah. Is
2: there a particular protest against the national anthem?
0: Uh, no, I mean that, uh, for example, I don't know, now in Europe, in many soccer fields, some uh, there's like a debate because, uh, for particularly in Spain, there's like protest to national anthem, uh, but, and there's a debate if that must be forbidden because it is disrespectful toward the people yeah. who are part of in Spanish, or on the other hand, is a part of the of the freedom of expression as a consequence of people who don't feel Spanish.
2: Yeah. Well. Um I, I'm not in favor of forbidding anything on the grounds that it's disrespectful, forbidding anything through, through uh, the force of law uh, or through the force of university punishment or whatever else. Because I think, you know, I respect America. I respect Spain. Uh, but some might not. That's a, they may have good reason not to respect America or Spain. Uh, and, uh, uh, and there are lots of people in the EU who don't respect the EU, and they think it's a damaging force rather than a positive force. I don't think I'd be one of them, but that's their view. And those are views that need to be protected. At the same time, when you say protest, I would like to know more about the, the nature of the protest. I'll so give an example. There was this big, uh, this big uh, uh, um, controversy about. Uh, you Remember, there was this uh, um, uh, the uh, prosecution. I think three-year sentences were given to members of the band Pussy Riot uh, in Russian courts, uh, and. I think the three years is a pretty long time for what they did that strongly suggests that that what upset people is their message, and their message was anti-government, and anti-the Orthodox Church. But they went and did their protest in the middle of a cathedral. And, you know, you can't protest on other people's property without their permission, because among other things, they may be using their property to convey their own message. And if you go there and you you start uh, start protesting there, that may interfere with their own message as well as interfering with their property rights. So if somebody decides that they want to circulate YouTube videos of people singing the parody of the American national anthem, be my guest. If somebody decides to sing it at a stadium, I don't think you should be arrested for doing that. At the same time, if there is a... If the uh, the the uh, 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 baseball stadium invites someone to sing the national anthem on the PA, and someone brings out bull horns to interrupt that with their own version, you know that's not an acceptable protest. Not because of its message, but because of this, I think, content-neutral rule that says you can't, in the middle of somebody else's speech, um, uh, 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 I- interrupt it in a way that keeps it from being heard. Now, the last thing I should say is there are also questions of manners. And a lot of the things we're talking about here are subject to lesser constraints, I think, than the legal ones or than the institutional ones, but ones that, you know, if you express yourself in certain ways, people might stop wanting to invite you to dinner parties. Do you folks have dinner parties? You should. I hear kids these days don't have enough dinner parties. Uh, uh, easy, by the easy version, a tea party or a coffee party. Just just buy some dessert and invite people for dessert after dinner. You don't have to cook for them. It's really nice. You won't get invited to those if you say really rude things. So it may be if you are mocking Mohammed or mocking the American flag or something along those lines, people will say, you know, that's kind of a rude way of putting things. Could you have done it a little bit more politely? That's an interesting question. Again, an interesting debate to be had. But a debate to be had, I think, free from coercion.
1: So there was the um, torture Muslims chalking. There was also another chalking on the Chicana, Chicana student resources room that said, like, build a wall. Um, both of these chalkings seem to, like, tell these students that they're not wanted on campus. Yeah. Um, the, the thrust of your speech is that uh, free speech allows us to, like, progress towards the truth. Um, but I think that there would be, like, wa- there's, like, pretty widespread consensus among people who study this, uh, especially in, like, the feminist uh, department and also... Uh, in the Black Studies Department, that when certain groups are excluded from academia, it distorts the conclusions that people in academia come to. Um, If that's also a concern for being able to progress towards the truth effectively, uh, why wouldn't this be like a balancing act rather than like an all-or-nothing proposition? Well, so for a couple of reasons. One
2: is if you look at the history of basically the last – well, it's all of First Amendment law – you look at the main beneficiaries of First Amendment law. In the 1940s, interestingly, they were Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they're a small religious group, but they were restricted in various ways. Sometimes there was violence against them, and the court stepped in and protected them, uh, protected their speech, not because they were Jehovah's Witnesses, but it was applicable to. Um, uh, uh, but, but, but the laws, uh, it, it was applicable more broadly, but the laws involved, uh, uh, the laws challenged were, were challenged by Jehovah's Witnesses who were restricted in their proselytizing and their refusal to salute the flag and such. By the time you get to the 60s, the main beneficiaries was a, was a civil rights movement. That most of what we've gotten for rights for minorities has come in large measure through free speech sometimes through free speech, even independently of constitutional protection, but often precisely through constitutional protection. Look at the number of cases which involve an NAACP as the name of a party, NAACP v. Alabama, NAACP v. Button, NAACP v. Claiborne Hardware. In New York Times v. Sullivan, remember it's a libel case, it was a case about a a pro-civil rights advertisement. Uh, likewise, the women's rights movement developed. A, there weren't a lot of challenges uh, that were required to laws, in part because, uh, because the path for it had been paved in considerable measure uh, uh, by, by earlier decisions, but it was developed as a result of free speech, the gay rights movement as well. So generally speaking, it, is, it has been minority groups that have been predominantly the beneficiaries of free speech, in large measure because the majority, if it really is a majority, usually its speech is protected simply because nobody's going to restrict the speech of the majority. And indeed, when some people think of restrictions on supposedly majority speech, it's actually restrictions on speech that is a minority in a particular place or institution by by whatever the majority is at that place. So that's one important thing. A second important thing, let's look at the particular example you gave, build the wall. I don't know what the right solution is to illegal immigration. Maybe the right solution is no borders. It's possible. At the same time, there are 7 billion people in the world. My guess is, given the poor state of much, I don't mean just economically poor, but as well, much of the rest of the world, uh, uh, probably a good several hundred million of them would like to come to America. And I would totally understand that. Uh, uh, Can we absorb 300 more million people in the last 10, 20 years if we really open our borders? If that's how many want to come, which may be. Uh, I'd, I'd at least want to want to think about that. Uh, uh, my co-blogger Ilya Soman, is an adv- is an advocate of open borders. I'm not sure I'm there. I'm pretty sure I'm not. And I say this as an immigrant. I'm very happy that people that America let me in and ha- and let lots of other people in that I think are very valuable to the country. But again, I'm not sure the three hundred that an extra three hundred million or even extra one hundred million are something that that uh, that, uh, that should be let in. Well, another possibility is let's have a restrictive policy, but not have very serious border enforcement. It's possible. Will that work out well? What's the point of having a restrictive policy that's constantly flouted? Another possibility is we don't build the wall. Of course, there is already a wall along the border, but we can't build the wall. We'll just enforce the existing wall. Well, all right, you could. But there are problems with how it's working, too. And other possibilities, you try to build the wall. I think it's kind of a foolish idea, although build the wall has become something that stands for more than just a question of, uh, uh, of building a physical wall. These are interesting and difficult questions. And if we are a democracy, if we are a place where decisions are made not by somebody who ever happens to be in power, uh, but by the judgment of the people... This question has to be aired. One of the things about this election is it's going to be in part a referendum on what is to be done about illegal immigration. Now, you can have lots of views about that, but in a democracy, that is a judgment that has to be made by the people, with everybody being able to speak about it, and if it turns out, if it turns out that uh, uh, that uh, uh, the, r- the wrong view is adopted, that's what it means to be in a democracy, and to s- try to stop the wrong view from being adopted by forbidding the expression of that view, I think, is both wrong for democracy and futile. Now, what about people who feel that they're being told that they're being unwelcome, or that they're unwelcome? Well, so the answer is. You hear that, that uh, you are unwelcome by some people. Lots of other people speak up and say, "No, no, you are welcome here," and you say, "Okay, fine. I'm going to be here. I don't care if some people don't much care for me." And you know that is exactly what we demand of of a lot of people. For example, there are—I will tell you—I'm not at all religious, uh, but I, I, I sympathize for deeply religious people, especially from relatively conservative religious groups who are constantly surrounded by people mocking religion, people making jokes about their religion, people, uh, people saying that this particular group is all a bunch of bigots, that the pope uh, uh, and the Catholic hierarchy, whom they may very much respect and uh, may, may uh, uh, feel religiously obligated to respect, uh, are doing all of these bad things. Uh, you know, what, what do we tell them? Well, they say, well, I feel unwelcome. I, you should suppress that. Well, what, what the answer is? Well, no, you know, we do welcome you. But you have to live with the fact that there are some people who don't think you belong here or don't think your ideology or your religion belongs here. And the answer is you have to decide for yourself that you do belong here. And once you do, then in that case, the fact that some people, usually a small minority, don't welcome you here, uh, that, that shouldn't stop you from being here. I would say the same thing about... Uh, uh, about people who who don't like criticism of illegal immigration, they may themselves be illegal immigrants or children of illegal immigrants. By the way, I'm I'm said I'm not a supporter of open borders, but I'll tell you, I have nothing against uh, uh, illegal immigrants as a moral matter. They're just trying to build a better life for themselves. Maybe we have to deport them, but it's but it's not because they're awful people. It's because there are these rules that we think we need to enforce. Uh, so I, I sympathize with them, uh, and I sympathize also with people who just share an ethnic group with uh, with uh, the majority of the illegal immigrants. Uh, but I don't think that that, that, the, that they can just say, well, we insist that nobody say anything that makes us feel unwelcome here. If you know that you belong here, then you belong here, and it doesn't matter, uh, or it shouldn't matter, and you should, it seems to me, just reject the position of those who say otherwise.
1: I think we better close. I know there are a lot of, a lot of more questions that we, um, we have to ask uh, um, Eugene, but I think uh, at this point uh, we should thank uh, Eugene Volok very much. for. You've been listening to a podcast
2: by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.